Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Joy James. Joy is the Ebenezer Fitch Professor of Humanities at Williams College. She is the author of Resisting State Violence, Shadowboxing, Representation of Black Feminist Politics, Transcending the Talented Tenth, and Seeking the Beloved Community. She's published numerous articles on political theory, police, prison and slavery abolition, radicalizing feminisms, diasporic anti-Black racism and U.S. politics, and writes on the captive maternal through the lens of the womb of Western theory. She's also the creator of the Digital Harriet Tubman Literary Circle at UT Austin. Joy's the editor of The New Abolitionists, Neo-Slave Narratives and Contemporary Prison Writings, Imprisoned Intellectuals, Warfare in the American Homeland, the Angela Y. Davis Reader, and co-editor of The Black Feminist Reader. Her most recent books include In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love and New Bones Abolition, Captive Maternal Agency, and The Afterlife of Eric Garner. It is a true honor and privilege for me to welcome Joy to the deep dive. How are you? I'm well, and it's really good to be in conversation with you, Philip. Can I just call you by your first name? Absolutely. Philip, Phil, any of those work for me. I'm cool with, with all of them. Well, please call me Joy. Well, either of them, I should, I should say. And thank, and thank you, Joy. You know, I spent most of my time in preparation for this conversation with your latest, one of your latest works, In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love. And the idea of love to me has been one of the kind of cornerstones of, of my work as someone who has had many different careers in the past, I'll call it eight to 10 years, I've really centered on this notion of love as one of the most powerful forces that we have in our possession. And, and when I speak about it, it's not in the rom-com notion of, of love, but a more active communal spirit of, of love as we build different systems for our future. And so when I, I learned about your work and started to dive into it and, and saw this book as one of your most recent book, it seemed like the perfect place for us to have a conversation. I think it's an incredible volume and collection of, of thinkers. And I want to really start there and give you an opportunity to surface why this was the time to put together a work like In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love. Yeah, Philip. I mean, it's a really good question. I've never heard anyone pose that as like the right time or the time, right? Now I have to think what that means in this moment. Although I could talk about the history of it. Yeah, absolutely. When there's a present moment and then there's future. Well, the history of it is that there was email requests from a feminist press in UK or uh, Brussels in London, I believe, where there are two offices, or the two sites. And they wanted a text on feminism. This is probably like early 2022 or 2021. And I said, really, I have these other projects and you could go to shadowboxing, representation of Black feminist politics. Maybe there's some essays there you can build on or, you know, so on and so forth. I'm going to say so on and so forth for a while. 
But then I thought, well, wait, we've all been in conversation a lot because of the lockdown around COVID. And there's been a lot of rage and grief because the disproportionality of access to medical care and the ability to stay home. So if you're poor working class, if you're black, if you're undocumented, if you're Latina, Latinx, Latino, if you're indigenous on some nations, right, which don't have the resources and we're not getting any of the medical supplies, then your precarity, the subtitle of in pursuit of revolutionary love is precarity, power, and community. So start with precarity. Then your vulnerability to state neglect exponentially, you know, ranks way beyond that of privileged, white, moneyed, or wealthy sectors. So my rage was being in New York City, and I've, I've said this in other platforms, in a you know middle-class co-op with public housing on one side, multi-million dollar condos on the other, and then hearing police sirens 24-7. And all the sirens were coming out from the sector, the side where public housing was. And so when I walk to the window, I'm seeing body bags. And this was 24 hours a day, multiple days. And then New York City would tell us how many people were dying, you know, from neglect or no one knew they had support or the hospitals were overwhelmed or they were, you know, not functional. But it went from the number, if I recall correctly, of 20 people a day before the pandemic to over 200. And then they just stopped giving us the numbers. So my rage around inequities and disposability as being a a tracer marker for Black people, you know, for low-income people, for impoverished people, from undocumented, again, the list that I've started with, you know, that led me when I was speaking on these podcasts during the lockdown, and I was privileged to have a home and privileged to have internet, but it led me to be more clear about what I wanted from a dysfunctional and oftentimes a dangerous democracy in relationship to the lives of the impoverished or imprisoned or abandoned, that what I wanted was more than I could articulate by myself individually. So I had to be in conversation. And then those conversations I recommended to the press, divided press, that they transcribe them, that we edit them, and that they become in pursuit of revolutionary love. This notion of of love and having to, you know, trying to find a way to articulate what that means. I think it's hard enough to articulate, or it's more challenging to articulate, even in the kind of surface level, like the romantic analogy that I started with. It's even more challenging to think about it in a revolutionary space. And it's because the two ideas, I think, to the what I'll call the casual observer might seem to be in conflict with one another, right? Revolution is is thought of as something that is potentially violent, right? Love, not necessarily seen in the same way, right? And so when we're talking about this revolutionary love and the concept of building different structures, imagining different, different futures and an active kind of love, how did you like with yourself and your contributors sort of pull and articulate that out in a way that lets these two ideas sit with one another. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying, that it seems on the surface to be a contradiction or a clash of cultures or desires. 
But I actually don't see it that way. And first I want to read, we'll say that the forward is by Deshaun Harrison, who's a brilliant theorist based in Atlanta and whose book won the Lambda Award. It's a book on, on Black and fat shaming and queer identity, right? So Deshaun Harrison gives writes the forward. The afterword is written by Mumia Abul-Jamal, who's been incarcerated for over 40 years and was denied an evidentiary hearing by a Black woman judge, Judge Clemens, even though the trial in 1982 was corrupt and riddled with racist bias, right? So I want to read from Mumia. It's on the back of the book, a short definition, because throughout the text, I keep saying, I cannot definitively give you a stable definition of revolutionary love, because again, this is a collective endeavor. Our very capacity to love has to do with our interactions with other people, which means we have no unitary, solitary definition of love without engagement with others who receive our love and then give us, hopefully, some love back, right? The the reciprocity or the connections or even the desires that never get met, the longing, right? So I will start with Mumia. He says it's Joy James's revolutionary love. But again, I think this is a collective book with collective ideas. So revolutionary love, writes Mumia, is umpth degree love or love beyond measure. It is anything love. It is love without reckoning. It is love that dares all things beyond which others may find the spirit force to survive, to live to fight another day. Such love is also fighting itself for the sake of ensuring that others may live. And that's from Mumia Abu-Jamal, who lost his wife of over 40 years several months ago, and the prison would not allow him to attend her funeral. And so this fight, right, which sounds like a, a verb that's about violence, it is a quest for survival, for longevity, for nourishment, for embracement, right, for connection. And there, we have no love without a fight, not us. And the only other group I can find that is similar to our, but not the same as our conditions, of captivity would be indigenous communities and definitely Afro-indigenous communities, right? So I think of love, as you say, not in the way in which you've referenced rom-com, you know, romantic comedies and all. I mean, for me, that's like consumer culture. You know, it's like they sell stuff because, you know, you have insomnia. <laughs> you got to watch Netflix or Hulu or something one more time. Absolutely. And we watch the same movies and shows over and over again. So that that's starting to think make me think of addiction. I'm not thinking of love as an abstraction or as accumulation. Love is an interaction that is shaped by care and sacrifice, right? And so being a former seminarian, I think of agape, yeah. which is, yeah, you, so you know what that is. So, But listeners might not, right? I came to the term through reading essays about Martin Luther King and things he wrote, mm-hmm. right? So when I was in college, um, I had this essential writings of Martin Luther King book that sat on my dorm shelf. And that was the first time I heard the term. And it's become a, a working term for me ever since. I'm not saying he invented the term, but that's, I learned of the term through that that context. But please like invite the um, agape term terminology and how you're thinking about it here. 
It's so great to bring in Reverend King, right? A theologian, pastor, received his doctorate in theology from Boston University. So also one of those like black excellent moments we're supposed to always be celebrating, even though we still get shot up and choked out on a regular basis. But for King, right, the, the beloved community, right, you know, and his passion for love and also he has contradictions. I know there's a new memoir out. Everybody knows he was human and flawed and nobody was trying to make him to a deity. But his devotion to love led him to mutate because he moved from, you know, 1955, a young pastor with a doctorate. So it's a good look for the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, committee to make him the head of it, even though he'd never really organized before. Right. But Rosa Parks, Edie Nixon, who's a labor organizer, Joanne Robinson, who's a, a teacher in a local community college until she's fired for a civil rights agency. They collectively understand that King will have a useful role. And he goes beyond what is useful because his capacity to love expands. So when he is assassinated, he is working with impoverished sanitation workers, right? in Memphis, Tennessee. So he moves from being, you know, oh, here's the Nobel Peace Prize. Here's in front of the cameras. Here's like with the celebrity and celebrity politics was really big then. And it's it's huge now. Absolutely. But his understanding of agape brought him to the violence that you mentioned, not as an aggressor, but with the understanding that he would be a target. And so there's the one speech in 1963 that I have a dream. And it's that last speech or the penultimate speech where he says, I may not, you know. Get to the mountaintop with you. Yeah, the mountaintop. But we as a people and his love for the people, that was his radar. I've seen it, I don't know, a, a million times in hyperbole, but many, many times. And it always gives me chills every time because there's a. There's a moment as he's, um, I think those of us from certain tradition, not necessarily a religious tradition, but a black tradition, <laughs> will we'll understand there's a moment as he's talking where he kind of pulls away even from the microphone. And, you know, he, he trails, like because of that, it kind of trails off, but it's like a, a very in the moment thing. And every time I, I hear that speech, um, particularly the end that you reference, you know, the chills. But I'm so glad you pointed that out because every time I hear the speech, I feel the same way. And that those feelings are emotional registers. And for me, what it registers is that King loved us. Nobody wants to die prematurely. Nobody wants to die violently. But if you understand the origin stories of this democracy, of captivity, human trafficking, mass rape, enslavement, lynching, Jim Crow, political imprisonment, mass incarceration. If you understand that, then you understand that violence will manifest to try to quell or kill your love. And the revolutionary love is the pushback against the violence. Revolutionary is not inherently violent. You know, for those of us who are in the faith of Christianity, and there are other religions, right? There's Islam, there's Buddhism, but for Christianity, I memorized this or was has somebody had me memorize this by age four or five, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the way that gift was through a crucifixion, which is one of the most horrific ways to die. 
that's a slow torture death. Yeah. And so what do we receive? We receive people in movements, whether or not they call themselves revolutionaries, who risk their lives so that we can live with honor and with grace. And so I would never strip revolutionary away from love. And I understand there are other ways of love. Like if my kids love me or partners love me a certain way, I'm not going to call it revolutionary. Yeah. I, I appreciate the love, but I understand it's not the same as agape, which my understanding is a form of political will. You will yourself to love people who may not love you back, people who may annoy you, people who you wish would do better in life or be more disciplined. And I could go down a long list. And all that list of flaws includes my own flaws, right? But without a revolution of some sorts, how would we have the capacity to love freely without the constant losses? You know, Carol Bryant died, what, a couple of weeks ago at the age of 88. And I was like, oh, she lives 68 years longer than Emmett Till, the 14-year-old. Yeah. Whose claims that she claims, you know, whistle had a list, whatever looked at you the wrong way, reckless eyeballing, as they call it, leads to, you know, a child being tortured and murdered. But what his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, did was revolutionary. Open casket funeral for a mutilated child. Yeah. And you and the photographs go around the globe. That sparked, I hear from some scholars and historians they say that Rosa Parks was thinking about Till later in 1955 when she refused to relinquish her seat. So we're impacted by all expressions of love, just like we're impacted by all expressions of harm. Absolutely. You know, as you're talking about kind of that commercial love, I, I think about Karis One back in the day had that song, Love's Gonna Get You, right? This notion of the going after the consumer is going to be the thing that kind of does you in, in one of his albums. But when you talked about, you know, Dr. King and others, this capacity to expand, and then you juxtapose that with the, you know, the violence of, of the state. And, and you, and you made a, a point that the, they're trying to take away that capacity for you to love. And, and it makes me think about how they say, you know, we got to have a thick skin, right? Like all these things that we're sort of, built up within ourselves that I think become, you know, in, in my opinion, become impediments to us being open to the kind of revolutionary love that you're describing. I'm curious your thoughts on that sort of framing, particularly for those of us coming from the Black community, but I'm sure it's not, it's the same in probably many other communities where navigating it and surviving it is often in toughness, a defensive mechanism just to move in, in certain spaces. Yeah, that's very interesting because I had never contemplated how our thick skin, which is a necessary armor, right, against constant insults and denigration. It's not just might. It's, as you say, it functions as an impediment or a barrier to vulnerability in loving. Like, you know, if you're always on the defense or always looking over your shoulder or waiting for you the next shoe to drop or for somebody to call you out your name or hustle, there's a, you know, it'll be a long list if I start that list. Yeah, this is the trick of it or it's tricky, right? I think it's like a dialectical dance. How do you protect yourself without becoming an armadillo? Like without having such thickness 
because of fear of being hurt, that you can't be penetrated or absorbed through any kind of mist of love, right? And how does that armor also under capitalism, because that's the economic order, actually in the U.S. it's imperialism because that's how they get, you know, raw labor, you know, raw goods and, you know, invade and destabilize other countries for accumulation. So how do is it that we could be vulnerable, have grace and dignity, emanate from ourselves, within ourselves and our communities, but also have the strength and that and so a, a veneer of hardness so that every arrow or rock or bottle that's thrown at you doesn't have that impact that hits your soul. And so maybe about agape, it's not just the will of loving other people, it's the will of loving ourselves, loving ourselves enough that we can drop our defenses when necessary. And it's exhausting to always have your shields up 24-7. And it makes it hard to build coalition, right? Because that's something that I spend time thinking about because it's, it's very popular. And I'm using kind of the typical dichotomies here when I when I use this language, right? They'll say like, oh, the left eats itself and, you know, they're constantly infighting and, you know, they're disorganized, like all the things, right? And I very typically push back on that notion because in you know, we we talked about Dr. King, right? Murdered. Malcolm X mm-hmm. murdered, right? Walter Rodney murdered, right? Like, you know, tons of of men, women, queer, others murdered, right? Even if we're talking about climate activists, like I, I do a lot of talk around sustainability and things like that. And I'll go into these rooms and I'll highlight to them, like, you know, it's easy for people to sit here and think about this as a function of packaging. But they're climate activists that are murdered. Every year is a record year of climate activists being murdered globally, right? So the left is not, to me, as much disorganized as as much guilt, (laughs) you know? And, you know, so I try to always make that point. But to kind of drill down to the way we think about finding and building community and coalition, even when we are not perfectly aligned on everything, Opening ourselves up to vulnerability seems to be a part of that, but it's it's also hard when you feel like you're fighting for scarce resources, right? Which is part of the capitalist game. So I'm curious your your kind of thoughts on the revolutionary love and the building of coalition and, and movement among those who are not might not be aligned across the board. Yeah, decades ago, Bernice Johnson Regan, as known maybe by most people as one of the founders of Sweet Honey and the Rock. But she was also a civil rights organizer in SNCC, I believe. And she was kicked out of her HBCU and a number of HBCUs. See, this is where when you think home is actually home and it's not just because it's a black space. They get their money and support from the governments, right? And they don't want students who protest. They don't want students who rebel. Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Turi. I mean, there's a, there's a list of students who get ousted out. Or someone like Kathleen Cleaver, who's at a private school, Barnard, like in New York City, right? But then she drops out. So there are these these ways in which people are are devoted, but they can't find home. And so what Bernice Johnson Regan says in this article, again, I think it came out in the 90s about coalitions, don't try to make them home. It's not a substitute for your home, Right. Because then, you know, when they they fall apart, it's like my family fell apart and it's dysfunctional. And, you know, it's just it becomes so emotionally charged 
that our capacity to think about the politics and to be faithful to the politics, I'm not saying to make politics supreme, but to understand the distinction between a political space and a home space. They're not synonyms, right? So you can always retreat back to your home to rest, to rejuvenate, to heal from whatever, you know, wounds and slights. The issue for me, though, I want to go back to what you said. I don't think the left is in that disarray, not the radical left. I think they're under-resourced and I think they're hunted. And so when I wrote shadow boxing over 20 years ago on Black feminist politics, I started to talk about managerial feminism. Like I'm, you know, I was there. I th- yeah, I think I was there to help, you know, support and inform Black feminism. But then I was like, wait, it's starting to look a little different. It's starting to look like a hierarchy, a bureaucracy, that there are these like forms that you have to follow to be an authentic feminist or something. And then we can talk later if you're interested in the captive maternal, like why I started to, you know, expand into that. But one of the things that I, I was noticing is that one of the things I mentioned in the book is I, I said there's a possibility that there's a difference between the counter-revolutionary, which would be the CIA, and you mentioned Malcolm's death, and also his daughters are suing the NYPD, FBI, and the CIA for their father's murder. And we know the CIA was involved in the murders of Patrice Lumumba, Amilcar Cabral, and others. I mean, they just stable, destabilized every liberation movement, pretty much in the so-called third world, which is the former colonies. But one of the things that stuck in my mind, right, in terms of thinking about our coalitions, if there's a counter-revolutionary as the police forces that are paid to destabilize us, even if they do so illegally, you know, you're not supposed to assassinate people. There may be an anti-revolutionary formation within the academy or within these nonprofits or within these sectors of organizing that don't want revolutionary love either. They just want progress, integration, and they also, you know, they're getting compensated financially to run operations. So for me, these are other forms of bureaucracy. The CIA is a deadly bureaucracy. And I note in a piece I wrote for Scalawag on the captive maternal, I was it was kind of tongue in cheek, but I wasn't laughing that um, the CIA <laughs> had captured Harriet Tubman and cemented her in their quad because the CIA director came out and like, here's our statue of Harriet Tubman and she's the original spy. And I'm, I'm like, well, they've captured her and now they say she belongs to them and she works for them. Is it possible for us as a people or captive maternals to liberate our ancestors? Because the very meaning of what it means to be left or radical or rebel or revolutionary is always being captured. So once the CIA which shot up black liberation movements around the globe and also had a hand in destabilizing the Black Panther Party, once they have the statue of Harriet Tubman, then they're like ventriloquists. Then they explain, well, this is what a radical black woman looks like. This is what a freedom fighter looks like. And she's just like us. So our movements are sold back to us by capital and by state. And our left formations may not be as in in disarray or infantile as they're depicted to be. It's just that they're really small and they have very few funds. So the people who 
who have the money to start these new publications and their donors are these large corporations that work with Democratic Party or invested in foster care removal. That's how they made some of their money. And now they're going to fund these new abolitionist magazines or journals that are going to tell us what it means to be radical. Then they start using the language of armchair revolutionaries to dismiss other Black leftists who actually went to South Africa or other places and fought revolutionary battles. So this is the thing. We can't control the definitions of who we are when there's constant capture. I don't believe that we're in disarray. I believe that we're under a microscope and a scope and that we're designated for destabilization by the counter-revolutionaries and the anti-revolutionaries who also present themselves as progressive, forward-thinking caretakers. We, we are going to get to captive maternal because I have that in my notes. <laughs> but I also have on this notion of, because you mentioned like when you were talking about feminism, Black feminism, that it be started to become like a bureaucracy, right? There was a, a managerial reaction. And the notions of like black excellence, right? Like that comes up in the book. And, you know, that's something again, that we wrestle with, right? Like, you know, I'm sure you've seen these videos of like armies of black dudes walking down the street in like suits, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, and like, you know, all the like very tight suits, everybody's coming for to like coming from or to brunch, you never know, um, or, or church or something like that. But can I say something, Philip? But once you said that, you described that it reminds me what you said about the armor. They're, pre they're performing a protection of themselves or what they see themselves to be and an armor that is so rigid that you can't relax, you can't play, you can't be soft, you can't be vulnerable. And those are all dimensions of who we are to be fully alive. It's telling a story, right? That like Black excellence looks like this, right? Like Black excellence is, is this thing. And you know, you spend five minutes on the internet and you're, and you're gonna, in certain spaces, you see this all the time, right? Not just that depiction of it, that, as a little tongue in cheek, but it, it could be anything, right? Like the fact that I think like the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is a black dude, right? Or like, you know, they use these notions of any success that we have is considered like black excellence. Like someone as terrible as Eric Adams could be spun as black excellence, right? He's the mayor of New York City. And I'm like, this dude's horrible. And so I'm curious about how do we how do we think through that more to be able to be more discerning about, about how we move in the world? Because you, you mentioned HBCUs. Like I went to anyone who listens now, I went to Howard and Howard is, is not a radical institution in many ways, though I, I feel incredible love and pride for having gone there. So we're in this like conundrum. I feel like I'm in a conundrum. So maybe I'm asking for a little bit of therapy on how to like, you know, navigate some of those things that that can you feel push and pull between realities. Yeah, it feels sometimes like we're performing ourselves for the public. Like we've been so wounded over centuries that we have to have a veneer or performance of blackness, like this blackface blackness. It just has to be excellent blackface blackness, right? And then we become extraordinary, like the magical Negroes or Negresses that white society wants in order to feel comfortable, you know, to be around us or not to shoot us up or choke us out in the subway. But it's really, it's ironic. 
it feels like a form of protection, but it's also, it's a form of the emperor has no clothes. So it's a form of being exposed by your desperation to belong in a democracy that has proven over centuries that unless it can accumulate from you, it really doesn't care. And the truth of the matter is it probably doesn't care about any human or natural life forms, given the devastations, right, of water, air, land, or Elon Musk, like toying around and blowing up stuff and messing up more of the environment, right? It cares about money accumulation and posturing as somewhat omnipotent. So you can't please an emperor because you're just part of their collection. You would please yourselves and your communities. You would find yourselves in communities. And the communities cannot be shaped by capture. We would have to free the meaning of Harriet Tubman in the quad. We would have to explain to the brother as a black person, like what happened to Jordan Neely, you know, the, the, I guess he was a performer at one point, a Michael Jackson impersonator. But if somebody's yelling that they don't have money for food, that they don't have a place to live, if you got a quarter, a dollar, a $5, like, it's just like, I'm sorry to hear that, I'm on, you know, here, here's something for you as a community member. You don't have to choke them out on a dirty subway floor and wait for the mayor to finally say something, you know, way after the tragedy is like, oh, he didn't deserve it. Let's say, yeah, but I think you're bringing back stop and frisk. You're, you're reactionary, but then you're a sign of black excellence because you're a black mayor. So we crave power that we don't even have when we have the black faces in high places. Obama didn't deliver because he couldn't, and he wasn't really interested in mass you know, equity or equality or human rights for black people. That was not his thing. Okay. So you can be or appear to be presidential, but you don't have the power until you have the autonomy. You won't have the autonomy until you have the desire. You won't have the desire until you develop your capacity to love. You won't have the love unless you will seriously engage in revolutionary struggle. Absolutely. And it's to the point of Jordan Neely and, and, We've built up so much fear in our communities, particularly, I think, since the pandemic. You know, living in New York, I've lived in New York all my life. The pandemic has become like the proxy for more security, right? More policing. The city is out of control. We see that narrative constantly, right? I mean, I've, I've seen it all my life, right? Because I, I remember Bernie Getz, right? For those who might not be as familiar with that story, they can Google it. But, you know, he was this vigilante on on the subway, right? That like shot, I think, several, like three or four. I think they were all Black guys. They were teens, actually, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they were teens. Because I watched the reaction when this story started to come out. And it's like a lot of folks, I don't know, I don't know if call it relief, but they're they're so... I don't know what it is. Like there's there's a there's a large group of people out there who are going to think like that response was reasonable. Oh yeah, for sure, but I mean, come on. Those are the same people whose parents or grandparents or great-grandparents thought a lynching was reasonable. I know they're breathing and walking around. It's like, yeah, but that's not my metric for anything because I already know that whatever's going on in your psyche whatever's going on in your dysregulation in terms of hyper aggression, 
I'm pretty confident that your targets will probably look like vulnerable populations. And that doesn't mean they're helpless, but probably female, you know, the whole thing about reproductive rights, right? Because I, I grew up in Texas and the whole thing about the right to life, I mean, those slogans, right? At the same time, they were also sniping and killing doctors who provided abortions when they're having dinner with their kids and they're on the dining, you know, in the big glass, like dining area and stuff. So, you know, Texas is Texas. But I'm like watching this and thinking, okay, so now you're moved from, we're going to ban abortion. It doesn't matter if the mother dies. Okay. Two, we're going to incarcerate you with a homicide charge. And to three, we don't even want a homicide charge for like 40 or life in prison. Now we want to execute you. And I was like, okay, then y'all are just deranged. Yeah. Like, I already know who you are. The question is, I feel, there's two responses. What is our level of fear concerning our predators? And what is our strategy for dealing with predators? See, the latter never gets asked by, I would say, celebrity abolitionists. They don't address that. Unless you're going to say more legislation, but now you know who packed the Supreme Court and Obama left a lot of vacancies. So it's not just the Supreme Court. So the law itself does not work with us, you know, dismantling affirmative action. And that was just like a third level compromise, right? Because we couldn't get what we deserved and what we are owed. So can we think independently from the state, which is counter-revolutionary, and can we think independently from our handlers who are anti-revolutionary? And again, the revolutionary does not have to look like George Jackson or John or any underground formation because we're above ground. But it does have to have a structure, a meaning, an articulation of ideals, and a strategy to protect the community. I want to use that to get us into captive maternals. Because I, I want you to walk through a little bit of, of the terminology, what it means, and it, and it connects so much to care. And that is, again, an, another term that I feel isn't surfaced enough in many circles. And I, I wrote a piece about the pandemic very early on being a crisis of care rather than just a biological pandemic that we were going through. But I want to give you space to kind of speak to and talk to captive maternals, because I think is, is such a important and, and eloquent notion. Yeah, well, the captive maternal, I thought it came around, in my mind, around 2016, when I wrote The Womb of Western Theory. And I was asked by a trans white scholar to contribute to this publication on abolition. And I was thinking about trying to raise kids in Harlem because that was my preferred spot, you know, but then figuring out the schools, how they function or are dysfunctional because they're under-resourced, like 70% of the schools in, you know, black or brown areas don't have libraries, right? School libraries or anything like that. And also the crowdedness, the lack of services and, and so forth. And, you know, I've said before that I moved further south you know, to, you know, Upper West Side has the better schools. And then after a while, when, you know, kids move on, then I just move back up north because it's just psychically, it's not healthy to be, if for, for myself, everybody else speak for yourself, to be in a predominantly white environment as a Black person. 
But when I was hustling, I was watching all the other parents hustle and grandparents hustle and older kids trying to get younger kids to school. And I was like, wow, in the in the stages of just child rearing, you know, I was like, there's that first stage, which is the conflicted caretaker. So you brought up the issue of the caretaker, right? To keep the family together, to keep the kids, you know, safe, to keep them on track, because there's a lot of distractions. And there are also different kinds of predators. They're not always white supremacists or white nationalists. You know, they can people down the block who are selling products or are pimping or doing other things. So that first stage of, of conflicted caretaker is like you understand the zone is hostile, but your kid is going to have to adjust to the zone. So either they're going to be that scholarship kid that goes, you know, further south of northern Manhattan or some, you know, to Brooklyn Heights to a private school that's going to be predominantly white. And then they're going to deal with, you know, the the racist slurs and the classism and everything. So you're making them go into a zone of harm. You can either go to the local school with the metal detectors and the cops and the kids who are in the underground economies. And these rich white kids are in the underground economies too. But, you know, they're, they're, when they sell product, they get counseling, you know, if anything, right? They don't they don't go to Rikers. Yeah, there's very little, very few repercussions. <laughs> almost nil. I remember when I was, I was teaching at Brown, right? And my understanding of the policy then, you know, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. The local police could not come on the campus. Because, you know, so if the wealthy kids, mostly the wealthy white kids were doing drugs, there's no way the local police had jurisdiction. I was like, how is that possible? Isn't it in the same city, Providence? It doesn't matter. This is a private club. If the kids are getting to it, we'll contact their parents or we'll give them like psych or stuff or, you know, take them to the hospital. But we don't, the police, the working class, middle class, white cops, they have nothing to say about what wealthy white kids do, Right. I mean, it's, it's sometimes people get caught up in stuff and arrested, but these environments are enclosures to protect the children of the wealthy. That is not true in working class, low income. These are zones where the police vamp on a constant, constant basis in order to have their numbers for arrests and to take people in and to meet their quotas, right? So the first level, because you don't have a freedom school for your child, because you cannot protect them, which I realized was totally humiliating because you forget what your childhood is like because you suppress it until you have black kids and you're like, oh my God, that's what I went through. I forgot, you know, this. So the first level, it's not, you know, people crack. And so then you move to the second level, which is a protest stage. It's like, I'm going to go talk to this principal and we're going to work something out. But the protests as individuals or small little cadres, they never have the impact to change the structure. So this is when we go to the movement. And it's like there's going to be masses of us. And this is what you saw with George Floyd, right? And it was global. Masses of us who will protest harm that is expressed almost as a form of warfare against our communities and our families. But the movements, right, they don't deliver. I mean, there was that mass movement protest around George Floyd. And then based on the data I saw in 2022, you have police killing more civilians than they have this years. So say we did all those protests. And so what's third stage? Is this working? No. Fourth stage becomes Maranaj. Then it's like we have to build our own communities, our own educational delivery, our own healing centers, our own survival centers, our own, you know, it is Maranaj 
But my understanding of the Maranaj as the fourth stage is prohibited. Like black autonomy, black freedom is prohibited. If we're not, there wouldn't be Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, I could go through a whole list, right? There wouldn't be yeah. bombing of Move in 1985 in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yep. A black mayor, Wilson Good. And then the white firefighters just standing there and letting a whole black neighborhood burn down after they bombed one house because they wouldn't turn on the hoses to put out the fire, right? So when we get to that stage of marinage, it is prohibited to have autonomy as black people unless we're faithful or obedient to or working for beyond just monetary compensation to state and empire. And that is when you become a war resistor. And so when I was talking at an LGBTQ center in upstate New York a couple years ago, and I was trying to talk about, and it was on the anniversary of Attica, the 1971 rebellion, right? It was more than a rebellion, human rights attempt, you know, for not to leave the prison, just to be not tortured within it. Yeah. Used Attica as these five stages. This is why this is non binary. There's no gender to the captive material. It's your function, it is not your personal identity marker, but it is a register that's tied into the Black experience. So, first level, right, the conflicted caretaker, you're the trustee. You're actually running the prison. You're the one doing the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, you're delivering meds, right? You are. They're taking your caretaking, right? Your care for other incarcerated people. They're using that to stabilize the edifice. Just like when we were enslaved, our caring for each other allowed us to calm down enough so that we didn't burn everything down or just jump off a cliff, right? So our love, our connection, our healing, if you got lashed, somebody was going to like cut you down and then put salve on your back and try to mm -hmm. get you are singing to each other, are telling stories to each other, are holding each other, are loving each other, that gave us emotional register to calm down enough to show up to the camps or the fields the next day. The democracy, the state stole our love for each other or repurposed it to stabilize its endeavors of capture. So, once you move from the trustee stage and you get to the next level, they start protesting, don't pay us 27 cents an hour, don't call me the N-word, don't call me boy, don't put me in lockdown. And these protests, like letter writing, like W.L. Nolan, who mentored George Jackson, right, on the West Coast. And George, of course, is, is killed by prison guards in August 1971 in Attica, Sparks, weeks later. Mm -hmm. So this on this level, right, of protest, it doesn't really get anywhere as an individual. Actually, W.L. Nolan was shot and killed by a prison guard. And that, you know, triggers other responses. So when you're on that level of protest, and George is killed, and you never met him, because you're on the other coast, East Coast, he's on the West Coast. But you're likely you've read, you know, Soledad Brother, his and you met him through text, right? And so from there, you understand that the state disappears, assassinates, murders what you love, and this rebellion comes forth. So and it becomes a mass. It's sure there was a small cadre that started it, but then people had to choose sides. 
So it becomes a mass rebellion. And that is the stage of movement. But when they take over the prison, that is marinage. They build a maroon camp inside the prison walls. They have uh, designated people who talk to the media, the New York Times, Tom Wicker. They have the people who like ask Panthers or Bobby Steele to come. William Kunstler, the civil rights attorney, to show up. And so you're running an autonomous zone within the prison. But again, autonomy is prohibited on the part of the captured. And they're not even trying to break out of prison. They're trying to negotiate for human rights. So what does the state do? Governor Nelson Rockefeller, governor of New York, I believe has a conversation with President Richard Nixon and they call in the National Guard. And the National Guard shoot through the hostages to kill mostly black and brown rebels. And later when the prison is retaken, right? When it's retaken, I am told, you know, by some historians that the guards tortured and killed additional leaders. So these are the stages. The war resistance stage is the last stage because to be free is to trigger the state's lethal response and they bring war and so you must resist the war but what happens is then we go up the scale to confrontation not a war that we started or wanted but a response to the war against us and then we go back down again and this this becomes the repetition except for the small minority numerical minority that remains faithful or devoted to radical thought and radical politics. That devotion, because that word has now come up again, I want to talk a little bit about devotion as it applies to abolitionism. And, you know, I think the terminology and the ideas have become more popular, for lack of a better word um, or better term. And there's a wonderful piece in the book around the plurality of, of abolitionism. And again, in in my work where I do a lot of stuff with futures thinking, I point to abolitionist thinking to shake up traditional futures thinking, which tends to be a lot of bullshit, right? About like flying cars and a lot of nonsense. And I challenge folks in that space who think of themselves as, you know, thinking outside of the knowns, but yet a lot of the, most of the thinking and and ideologies around abolitionism never comes into their mind, right? So I confront them with this to say, you can imagine all of these things, but you can't imagine like defunding the police, for example, or or other tenets and, and policies around abolitionism, knowing it's not just one thing. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to spend a little bit of time in that notion as it pertains to revolutionary love, because I think to some extent, as I cited the popularity of it, it also made me think about how terms can be defined away from their revolutionary nature. So it it seemed like that's a, a good place to kind of spend a little bit of our time. I agree. I think there's a conflation of abolition and revolution. I don't see them as synonyms. They're not interchangeable. And I would say the majority of the academic abolitionists and the elite abolitionists, right, would disagree with me. And so some of the phrases that I hear coming, you know, from their talks or, you know, when I'm reading their material or their publications, you know, phrase like non-reformist reforms. And I just say that's an oxymoron. And I don't, you know, I can't spend time on this because there's, you know, we finished a piece on Rusha McGee for Harvard Law's inquest. And it took a really long time 
to write. And then we get this pushback, like you weren't authorized to say, it's like, he's been in, this is Angela Davis's co-defendant. He's been in for over 60 years. He's 84. And I don't know who thinks they're running what in terms of abolition that we have to check in. And I didn't even know who you, like, I don't personally know you. How was I supposed to find you? Where's your email? Am I supposed to ask permission? There's this hierarchy, right? And also there's this capture, like this political prisoner belongs to me or this sector of abolition belongs to me. And I'm like, I can't get caught in real estate development, all right? It's just, <laughs> you own the block, you own the block. And I won't work on your block. But here's the deal, you don't pay me and you can't frighten me. So I don't work for you. Again, I'm going back to devotion. I'm just trying to figure out if somebody asks me to do something that's useful, and this has happened with political prisoners. I get caught in the middle. The I go visit, and they're like, "I want you to write this, and it's going to be like hard hitting, and we're not we're gonna we're gonna go for it, and we're gonna tell the truth." And then I get these phone calls or emails like, "You can't say that. We can't piss off the police. We can't pl- piss off the state." And then I'm like, "Okay, th- this is not a revolutionary struggle. You, I understand the fear level. I don't understand it from you because you're not inside." And you also have a nonprofit job or you're an attorney or you're an academic. So I know you have a regular paycheck with health insurance. So this is not about personal fear, about your well-being, but you say it's about the incarcerated. But then I'm hearing different things from them. Mm -hmm. They're saying just tell the truth. Right. And so then it comes to mind. Well, we're not supposed to tell the truth because the abolition that's been captured by the academy, the abolition that's been captured by the nonprofits is the abolition that is funded both sectors by either the state, like if you're UC Berkeley or UCLA, whatever, that's the state. It's a government entity or the private corporation. Like I tend to teach at the, you know, IVs, the private ones, right? Mm -hmm. I've also been at UT Austin for a while. So either you're working for the state or you're working for the private corporations that back the state. And even if you find this money from these nonprofits, when I kind of look up their revenue stream, it's like, no, they're embedded with the state and the corporation. They are corporations, they're just nonprofit, but I wouldn't call it money laundering. So I said, I would not do that. So I didn't do that. But I would say that the way in which the money flows from the same sectors that support the state, but it will be the Democratic Party, but it still has these punitive laws in place, right? There's no real abolition endeavor that looks like Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth or Fannie Lou Hamer or Ella Baker or El Haj Malik El Shabazz Malcolm or Reverend King, Mm -hmm. because at some point King just stopped taking the money or the money dried up when he came out against the war in Vietnam and he came out against capitalism and he came out against imperialism. I don't hear King, the beloved, who only spoke about the beloved community. I don't hear the beloved being cited as the template to follow. People can reference him and say, oh, he talked about agape and he did this and did it out. And definitely he's been co-opted because he's been turned into a shopping day, like in January, right? But that's like Harriet Tubman in the quad of the CIA. We would have to liberate the meaning of our ancestors 
who risk their lives for us in order to understand our mission today. But there's been so much co-optation and dilution, and it's not even, I mean, it's more than millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, honoraria of $100,000 to go talk about abolition somewhere, and that's on top of your base salary. You know, the accumulation of multiple homes, and I went on record saying more than once, well, people are coming out. Can you take that third or fourth home and turn it into a hospice center? I'm sure you could write it down because you've made it into some kind of nonprofit gathering site. Yeah. But like, why aren't we held accountable for monetizing black suffering and black death? And that the accumulations went up the ladder. They did not go down to the base. Yeah. And that's hard to swallow, right? Sorry, Phil. Why would we swallow? I will spit it out. I don't know. It's just, it's frustrating. It's angering. It it feels like a story that you've heard before, right? And you don't want to relive it. You know, Black Lives Matter, the leadership of that is a perfect example, right? Buying like cribs up in LA to, you know, to do all kinds of nonsense, right? And, you know, those notions are are then turned against us, right? But but, but Philip, I'm sorry to interrupt, but who... Who is the us at this point? It's not like the people don't know, because we've been saying this for the last number of years, like, hey, y'all, if you got 90 mil and then like nobody knows where 60 is, but now there's 30 and now it's down to 20. And now there's a lawsuit about who's going to take over that money. And then there are other people who are much more, I don't want to say smarter, but they're much more low key. They know how to manage their money so it doesn't hit the radar like that. But again, if you can make incredible amounts of money explaining black death and you live in affluent white neighborhoods where black people are rarely shot up right what what does that say about the value of the black working class or the black poor or the black unhoused like i i don't want to know personally what your records are but i think it would be a sign of integrity if we actually said this is how much revenue streams we got after George Floyd was murdered. I mean, I'm sure the family gets a death payment, which actually comes out of our tax dollars. But the people who professionalize this death, you know, I there was a moment when I was working with some of the impacted mothers and I got a phone call like in some encrypted thing, like somebody's going to roll up on you with a you know black SUV And I was like, how do you know that? Nobody knows where I am. I'm not even in the city. I'm somewhere and nobody knows where I am. And lo and behold, somebody rolls up with an SUV to kind of intimidate me. And later I hear the same thing is happening in other cities and people's apartments are being trashed. And I'm like, I'm just one of those cranky old black women. (laughs) Roll up on me. Like I marched to the end of the curb. Like I put my hands on my hip. I stare them down. It's like, I wish I had my cell phone. I'd take, you know, a cell shot of your, like, what have you, your license plates yeah. and I'll just post it everywhere. It's like, I mean, I don't want to swear because I tell the kids not, but the us is not the us because the hustlers are in the us. And there's the ones who will like roll up at your house and try to intimidate you and like, don't get it that people do have security strategies and you're in the wrong place and you're not even in a city and it's not going to go well for you if something goes bad in another territory, right? Because you don't run this show up here, right? And I don't run it. It don't get it twisted, right? (laughs) (laughs) This other thing, it's like the ones who like, oh, we'll be on a panel with you or maybe won't, but we're going to correct you because you don't really understand abolition. 
And it's like, it's not about what I say. It's about what the incarcerated say who have the autonomy because they don't need you. But here's the trick course, right? The Trojan gift. People inside are are not going to tell the people outside what they actually think about us because they need us to help get them out. They need us to publicize their cases, hook them up with attorneys, write to them, whatever. It's like they're held a hostage by the state, but in another way, they're ensnared by all the helpers who don't want to piss off the state because the state will mess with their revenue stream. But it's always like, oh, we can't piss them off because it's going to hurt this person. I'm like, this person's been in for like 49 years. Yeah. And I don't remember y'all throwing down. I don't remember you risking anything, like in terms of job security or honoraria. Keep your job. But like now you are you can't charge 100K. You only can get 10K for, you know, two hours or 90 minutes because you don't look liberal anymore. Radical liberalism took over revolution. And then they repackaged it, revolutionary struggle, and they sold it as an extension of their brand. I understand how markets work, but I would hope that our devotion could say that some markets need to stop. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it right there. Devotion to say some markets have to stop. Um, I want to get to the to the final segment of the show. I wanted to spend as much time with you as I could. Um, so I'm, I'm leaving out one section and I'm going to go just go to the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with my listeners that they think they should know or check out or be involved in. doesn't have to be serious, but they oftentimes are. My, my two drops are pieces of music, actually two double albums, one being Sign of the Times by Prince, the other being Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. The Stevie Wonder record being actually one of my favorite records ever made, but just really wonderful, amazing music in in both of them. I'm I'm a person deeply involved in music and in keeping with the conversation centered on revolutionary love and, and nourishing and feeding our spirits and having care as we do very serious work. I think music is a good way to do that. <laughs> so those are my my two drops, Sign of the Times by Prince and Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. That's great. Can I add one? Of course, you're the drop. I'm turning it over to you. <laughs> and now it's time for your drop. Thank you. It's such a, first, it's been lovely to speak, to be in conversation with you, hopefully I wasn't too animated or... No, not at all. We, I, I left so much stuff on the... I knew this was going to happen, but even like the conversation around precarity and fragility, something that I've, I think a lot about and the differences between those things, we didn't get to that, right? So this only in, invites us to do this again, should your schedule permit. For the next book, New Bones Abolition, Captive Maternal Agency and the Afterlife of Erica Garner, I was in Harlem... And, you know, went to a couple of protests when I could. And I was mortified that at, I believe, the age of 27, she transitioned after all that love and honor for her father, who was choked out on Staten Island and killed with chest compression by NYPD. So the the book is, is a tribute to her, but also to the captive maternals. And we're always complicated as captive maternals. I definitely am. But for my musical drop, if that's what you want to call it, or anthem, it would be uh, Nina Simone Centerman. And when she's, as she sings, she's running, you know, to God who says, go to the devil. She goes, you know, it's just our lives are so complicated. 
by stress and predation, but the love never left us. And so we move about. And at some point in that song, she cries for power. And that power is our love. I love that song. That's a great drop. And I, I always think of Sinnerman because it's a, a part of Avenelli's Revelations. And I try to see Revelation, um, I try to see Avenelli every year. And particularly, I, I try to make sure I go when they're doing Revelations. And Sinnerman plays a part in that final suite. So I always smile when I hear, when I think of it and, and hear it. And that's a great drop. Um, Joy, this has been truly a highlight and a pleasure for me. We could have kept going for hours, but I can't. Um, So that just means that we're going to have to definitely do this again. Again, the book is In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love, Precarity, Power, and Communities. I cannot recommend it enough. I can't recommend your work enough. And you have an open invitation to come back on the show um, so we can continue this conversation. And, and thanks so much for being with me. Thank you. New Bones will be out in August. So maybe, you know, Black August, we can reconnect. Let's do it. So this everyone's going to have heard this. So now we have to do it. This is on the record. And so we're going to have you back on the show to discuss that work and continue this conversation and probably branch off into many others. And so again, I appreciate you. And thank you again for being on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.